right, well, as Aiden said, my name is Doug, and one of the pastors here, it's a joy to be with you, and it's a special joy to be back with you um, here this morning. So I had a chance to get a couple weeks off recently, and I'm very grateful for that. I know for many of you, that meant doing more in my absence, and so um, thank you, and uh, it's really good to be back. If you have your Bibles, I sure hope you do, I would invite you to take them out. As a church, we are studying through the book of Acts, and this morning, the text that we find ourselves in this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 4 to 32, or sorry, four, chapter 4, 32 through chapter 5, 11. So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. Um, if you were with us last week, you saw that one of the things that we considered with Pastor Wade is he opened God's word and preached it last week. We saw that there are many things in the world that threaten the progress in the community of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we were really encouraged last week is that we would do well to follow the example of the early church as they faced opposition and obstacles to the progress and the community that Christ had established in them. We would do well to follow their example. We were reminded that we serve a big God who is powerful and who is mighty and able to save us. He's able not just to keep us, but also to help us as we face tremendous opposition to the gospel. Well, as the story continues in this week's passage, we will discover that there's sort of another approach. There's, a, there's an, an, an all-too-common tactic of Satan to destroy and to disrupt the progress of the gospel. Another sort of threat, if you will. But what's unique about the threat that we will discover and look at this week is that it does not come from outside of the community of God's people. But rather, the threat that we will focus on this morning is a threat that comes from within not from without the church, but from within the church. And as we walk through this text this morning together, I suspect that this threat, this problem, will be very, very familiar for many of us. And so with your Bibles open, I'm going to read the text, and then I will pray for us, and we will dive right in. This is Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 40, or sorry, 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear, came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. But Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we gathered together this morning as your church, as your people, we right now turn to your word. And Lord, we ask your spirit to fill this place and to use your word um, to do what it does, to guide us in truth, truth that is eternal and, and completely true. Lord, and would you use it to encourage us this morning? Would you use it to confront us this morning? Would you use it to challenge us this morning? Would you use your word right now to bring comfort to our weary hearts. Lord, we love you and we need you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, college ministry for me at Parkview was incredibly influential in my life. And it was influential in my life for a number of reasons, one of which was the individual who at that time um, was the leader. His name is Jesse Bradley. I've talked about him a number of times. And for me, he really served as a mentor, somebody who came alongside of me and who um, really inspired me to grow in my walk with Jesus and eternally indebted to that man, a tremendous man of God. Um, one of the things that Jesse, a few things that I really appreciated him is he had just, the, if you ever sat under his teaching, tremendous passion to just preach the gospel, just to preach the gospel. He was also a man who was, who was so committed to prayer. There were stretches throughout the ministry where we would have prayer every single day. I think it was like 6 a.m. at the little Danforth Chapel on the university campus, and he would be there every day praying, and he would mobilize the, the rest of the ministry, ministry to do the exact same thing. He was a man who preached the gospel. He was a man who prayed, and he was also a man, as you would watch him up on front on the stage, he was also a man who was funny. He could make you laugh. He could enjoy a good joke. He was a man of humor, and I really appreciated that about him. Now, that was all of sort of, I mean, that wasn't all that summarized his public ministry, but certainly you could see those three things evidently every time he stood up on a stage on a Thursday night. Now, one of the reasons why Jesse was so influential in my life was because I began to realize as I spent time, as I got to know him better and, and closer and closer, that the man who I saw up front was also the man who I would know as we drove in a car or as we would go to McDonald's 
that as the more I got to, to peer into his private life, I got to see a measure of consistency between how he lived publicly in front of others and personally, privately by himself. Jesse was a man who was consistent. He was consistent. For me, he was a wonderful, wonderful example. His preaching the gospel, he would do so privately as he would do so publicly. His commitment to prayer, he would do so privately as he would do so publicly. And his ability to have fun, guess what? Transcended both his public and his private life. He was a consistent, consistent man. Consistent man. It's one of the really the highest praises that you can offer somebody today. Somebody whose life that you see up front in public matches their interior life, their private life. Those two things line up. When we see this evident in other people's lives, it inspires within us a measure of hope. And it's a hope that we need, especially as we consider the day and the age in which we live. In the past five years alone, I can think of countless organizations that have been brought to their knees. Why? Because the people, the individuals who led those organizations lived lives that were marked by a tragic inconsistency. Their public life did not match their private life. And I would be willing to wager there are names running through your head, national names, authors, pastors, speakers, individuals who had significant influence, maybe even in your life. Well, here's the deal. When we see this inconsistent, when we see consistency in others, it inspires us to hope. When we see integrity, consistency, holiness, we long for that. But yet there are stories of deceit and hypocrisy that continue to threaten and to disrupt the progress of the gospel. This morning, as we consider these words in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, what I believe that we will see, what I have seen in the last couple of weeks of studying it, is that by God's grace and through his power, we must, we must live lives of consistency and our commitment to God and our care and concern for one another. By God's grace and through his power, as the people of God, we must live lives of consistency and our commitment to Christ and our care for each other. This morning, as we walk through this text, three sort of points I want to make. First, I want us to look in verses 32 and 37 through 37. I want us to consider the true people of God. Secondly, in chapter 5, we will consider together a really serious threat. And then thirdly, we'll talk a little bit about the only possible solution. So first, the true people of God. So far in our study of Acts, we have seen that this community of people is a community of people that are marked by one opposition. We saw a lot of that last week. And we've seen this really from the opening verses of the book. The book starts off sort of on the heels of the crucifixion. This is an event that is influential in shaping the community of God's people. The, the crucifixion, they become a people, God's people, who are, who are mocked, who are ridiculed. 
As we read through the story, we will see one opposition, one obstacle after another. When we get into chapter seven, we'll consider the first martyr of the faith following Jesus, Stephen, and how he was killed. We'll consider Saul and how he ravages the church and wants nothing more than to shut it down and the extreme lengths that he goes and others go to do just that. Now, this opposition, the obstacles that we face from without the church should not come for God's people, for his disciples, as much of a surprise. Jesus himself said before he left that a servant is not greater than his master. He told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Opposition, in effect, Jesus is saying, comes with the territory. And certainly many of us feel this today. I think last week, I, just as Wade was preaching, I could think of just all of the different, he was mentioning a variety of different obstacles and challenges that, that the church faces in our contemporary age. And we need to think through these and take them very, very seriously. There are so many things that threaten the progress of the gospel. But another marker that really, a theme that we see throughout the book of Acts is not just the opposition that the, the, this early church faces, but also the progress that it makes in light of the opposition. We see that there's this truth that should strengthen our hearts and put steel in our spines. As we read through this story, we'll see that while there's significant opposition, there is also tremendous Progress that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the very kingdom of God. And that's what the story of Acts is all about. The progress of the gospel in the face of immense opposition. We serve a king who can't be stopped and therefore we are a people likewise that can't be stopped. That should strengthen us and comfort us. Now, as we see in the first couple of verses here at the end of chapter four is that this is a remarkable, the true people of God are a remarkable community, a remarkable community. It's not just the fact that they were increasing and that they were multiplying, but as we think of the descriptions that were given, this is one of three in the opening parts of Acts that we see. We saw one at the end of chapter two. We'll see another at the beginning of next week's passage in chapter five. This is one of three sort of summary statements that the, the author of Acts that Luke gives us that sort of helps us understand what the early church was like. And three things that kind of jump out off the pages at me is sort of descriptors, markers of this community is they were a, a united people, they were a generous people, and they were also a people that were committed to witness. They were, they were unified, they were generous, and they were constantly witnessing. First, we see unity. It's the first thing that we see in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart, the Bible says, and one soul. You see it right there in verse 32. Throughout the scripture, this idea of the heart refers ultimately to the wellspring of our being, the, the central place of who we are. It's, it's the place which God zeroes in on us as we consider our spiritual experience ultimately taking root. Where does that happen? It happens in our heart. And we're told here in Acts chapter four that these believers were of one heart and one soul. They were united in the very deepest part of who they were, drawn together. It's really a, a beautiful picture. What this ultimately is saying is, is what Jesus had prayed God would do in John 17 when he says these words, and we looked at this extensively this fall. He prays to the Father that they might be one 
This is Jesus' prayer for his people, that they would be a united people. He says, just as, as the Father and, and I, are in I and I in you, that the world might believe that you have sent me, that they would look at God's people, that they would see a united people of God, and they would give glory to God because recognizing that only God could do that. They're a united people, and we see it right here. The prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 is being answered in Acts chapter 4. They're united. One heart, one soul. It's a glorious picture. But more than that, not just are they united, they're also a generous people. One scholar says it like this. These are a people who chose rather than to lay up for themselves, which is our, I think, temptation, to lay out for one another. Rather than laying up, storing up treasures for themselves, these are a people who decided to lay their lives out for one another. We see it in verse 32. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We see it again in 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. We see it as we read on in verse 37. We get this wonderful example of what it looked like in Barnabas, a man who sold his property and took the proceeds of the property and laid it at the apostles' feet. An open demonstration of his sacrifice and his generosity. Use, use this money to take care of the needs of our community. It's a generous, generous offering. Now, as you read this text, you might be thinking, okay, is this a call to communism? Is that what we're being asked to do here? The answer is no, okay? Communism would say something like, that which is yours belongs to everybody. But a Christ community says, that which is mine is yours. There's a difference there. And we know this is not a... There was no obligation here for Barnabas to do this. We know as we read into chapter five, with the example of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter's rebuke to them, said, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? You, it was yours. When you owned the property, it was yours. You were not required to sell the land. You were free to do with the land as you wanted. He goes on to say, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter's making the point that, listen, Ananias, you, you sold the land, you, you, were, you didn't have to do that. Then you took the proceeds and you were free. It was at your disposal. You were free to do with it what you wanted to. So it's not a call to be in a communist community. This is a call really to radical generosity. And that's a thing that starts in the heart. This is something that the spirit produces in the people of God a strong care for one another, providing for the needy, taking care of the poor, and a sacrificial spirit we see in the early church is one that's worth imitating. Last couple of weeks, I reread through one of my favorite books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. And as he talks about this community of God's people, listen to this description. It says, the exclusion of the weak and insignificant the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. It's a beautiful description of the community of Christ. 
that we are a people, by God's grace, who say, what's mine is yours. And we don't do what we're often tempted to do when we see one another in need, especially a need that we can meet. We refuse to turn aside. We refuse. You know, last night, many of you were at the celebration of faith banquet, and it was really a special, special time. I mean, it's, it's, this is one of the reasons I love this church, because there is a stubborn refusal to neglect the needs of one another, and Christ loves it, loves it. You know, last night, just a quick example, we had, if you were there, we had going into the, to the banquet, we had about $77,000 raised of like matching grant money. And there was somebody just a few hours before the banquet started and said, you know what? I would really like that number to be $100,000. Let's make it $100,000. And just like that, gave money to turn the number from 77,000 matching gift to $100,000 matching gift. I mean, just remarkably generous. And that's a type of generosity that should epitomize the community of God. When we see a need that we can meet, we do so. Next, it's a community that is united, generous, but also it's, it's a uh, community that's marked by witness. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Remember, just before this, Peter and John were arrested by the authorities. Why were they arrested? Ultimately, because they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, brought opposition to them. Before releasing Peter and John, they were warned by the authorities not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. Stop telling this story. Be quiet. Stop spreading the gospel. Upon release... Peter and John gather with God's people, and what do they ask for? They ask for boldness. Boldness for what? Boldness to not stop speaking the story, to not stop spreading the gospel. And then last week's section in verse 32, sorry, 31, it ends by describing how they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They continued to speak it. Here we are told that with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The the, the transition from last week's message to this week's message is so, so important, and you cannot miss it. They were bearing witness to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ so effectively. And the reason that their witness was so affected, and this is why, is because we see an emphasis on the proclamation of God's word last week. And this week, as we look at the text, we see an emphasis on the demonstration of that word in the context of community. Essentially, the gospel message wasn't just something they were proclaiming. It was not just something they were speaking. They were boldly doing that, but it was also a message that they were living. And as a result, because their their speech 
matched their life, because their belief matched their behavior, because their proclamation lined up with their demonstration, do you know what happened? Their witness was effective. People heard what they said and they saw it when they looked in their lives. They were consistent. The community, their community was boldly declaring the newness of life and Jesus Christ and they were beautifully displaying it. They were doing both of those things. Folks, if you want a recipe for an effective witness of the gospel, that's it. That's it. Let your life match up with your speech. Their lives matched their message. This is a remarkable community. Remarkable community. Secondly, we get into chapter five, we see that there is a truly, an incredibly serious problem that comes up. This great picture of biblical community, we, we are provided with two examples, one that affirms the values of the community, one that affirms the power of an effective witness, speech and life matching up, contrasted with another story where they don't. Another story that is antithetical to the values and of not just the community, but also the gospel itself. And that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And this is a, a story that for many of us we read and it's disturbing. <laughs> it should be disturbing. I think Luke includes it in the book of Acts because it should make us feel uncomfortable. Don't resist that. There's some similarities in the story just like um, Barnabas' example, we're told that Ananias and Sapphira, just like him, they both had property and they both sold it, they both chose to sell it. And just like Barnabas, we're told that Ananias and Sapphira took proceeds of the sale and they laid it sort of publicly at the apostles' feet. And this is an indication of their generosity so that that money could be used. So, so it's important to, to not miss the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were generous. They were. Again, they didn't have to sell they took a portion of the proceeds and they gave it away. Use at your discretion, apostles. They were generous. Didn't have to do that. Different outcomes. There's some significant differences. Barnabas continues on in the story of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, this is it. This is the last chapter in their life, okay? Some significant differences. Unlike Barnabas, they did not give all the proceeds told in verse 2 that Ananias, with the knowledge and agreement from his wife Sapphira, kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Unlike Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira were not commended for their generosity. They're not held up as examples, shining examples of what should be expected from God's people. Instead, they were punished, severely so, for their dishonesty. And as we look at the way Peter interacts with them and addresses them, we see that Peter's main problem with them, with what happened, was ultimately they were dishonest. They were dishonest. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Remember the wellspring of your being, where you are your real self. That's where this idea took root. And you have not lied to man, but to God. 
Why, as you read through this story, I know I did. First thing when I read through it and preparing for this was, why is God taking, taking this issue so seriously? I mean, you read through it and you might be tempted to think, okay, slow down. Seriously? Is it that big of a deal? Clearly, it is. Why does God come down so hard on this couple? What's going on? Listen, there would be nothing wrong with withholding some of the money. The text says it so much. After it was sold, the money was at your disposal, Peter says. You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to give anything. See, ultimately, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, the problem wasn't what was in their pocket. The problem is what was going on in their heart. Ananias and Sapphira sought to deceive. They sought to make it look like they were giving away all that they had. In other words, Ananias and Sapphira, they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. It was bad enough that they were dishonest, but they, worst of all, they lacked integrity. They wanted it to give the appearance. They wanted others to see how sacrificial, how generous, how kind and thoughtful they were. They wanted other people to see what they had done. And they wanted that would, what would likely come along with that recognition, the prestige, the respect that might exist within the community. They wanted the appearance, the praise, the approval of being sacrificial without the inconvenience. That's ultimately what hypocrisy is. For Ananias and Sapphira, there was a significant gap between their public persona and their private interior reality. As Jesus would say in Matthew 23, they didn't practice what they preached. They wanted to present themselves outwardly as righteous so they could be admired for their generosity, while inside, they knew they were self-indulgent hypocrites. Now, this is even more serious when you consider, go back to consider the ideal of the community. A community whose speech lined up with its life, whose message lined up with the way it lived, what Ananias and Sapphira did was completely counter to that. They, they were not preaching a message that they lived. Their word and their deed were not consistent. That's what sets them apart. And what we see here is that hypocrisy, and this is a truth that I think each one of us knows probably all too well. Why would God take this so seriously? Because hypocrisy disarms the people of God and disrupts the progress of the gospel. Hypocrisy, this is our secret weapon. We don't just preach the gospel, we live it. That's our secret weapon. And hypocrisy disarms us. Now, my guess is you've seen your fair share of hypocrisy. And when you see it, it just stinks. It's ugly. 
if you're a Christian here this morning, you know, when, when hypocrisy in someone else is exposed, you hate it. You hate it. You know why you hate it so much? Because it makes you look bad. Think about some of the leaders of our day who have fallen and how bad it makes the church look. And if you identify with the people of God, we hate it. It makes us look bad. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, first, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. But I would bet you hate it too. How many Christian, non-Christians have you heard here say, you know why I don't go to church? Because it's full of hypocrites. Have you guys heard that before? I've heard it before. I hear it all the time. It's one of the main reasons I would say a lot of people, maybe it's an excuse, don't want to come. Because they see or maybe have seen and experience somebody or a people whose message doesn't match their life. I mean, think of authors, pastors, leaders in our day and age who've been exposed, whose lives of inconsistency have been exposed. And it does a couple of things. Rocks our community, number one. And number two, it hurts our witness. It's a sad, sad thing. It is a serious, serious thing. But I think there's another reason why we have so little patience for it as a people. And it's because if we are just honest with ourselves for a moment, we see the potential of hypocrisy in our own hearts. We see the nasty dragon of hypocrisy lurking around every corner of our life. Ready to devour us. Just think of the three things that epitomize this community, unified. I mean, we're tempted to want unity. Who doesn't want to be unified? I mean, teams with it on their jerseys right now, for goodness sake. We all want to be united, right? No around what sometimes, but we all want it. And it's so tempting to say we value it, to say we want it, and to say we want to see it happen here. But to talk about other members who call this place home, maybe behind their backs, maybe disrespect another member or a friend or to, to say stuff or to do stuff that drives a wedge in between our church. It's tempted for us to do that. It's tempted to walk in here with a smile and to act like we're friends and to be thinking in our head, boy, I hope that person doesn't say hi to me this week. So glad we don't do that shaking hand thing anymore. I don't want to have to act like I like that person. It's tempted. That exists in each of our hearts. It's, we, we want to be generous. The idea of sacrificing for a common good is desirable. But I think that one of the most immediate applications of this text is to be able to say that, you know, we're also tempted to say, hey, I belong to those people and never give anything. Turn away when we see a brother or a sister in need. Or to maybe say, yeah, that's my church, but never actually give to it. It would be hypocrisy. 
And every one of us is tempted towards that. Witness. Tempted to say, Jesus is my number one. Above all else, praise Jesus. Every one of us is tempted, every one of us, to walk into this room on a Sunday morning, raise our hands in praise, to open our mouth and declare his goodness, and then never have the name Jesus leave our mouth once we leave these doors the rest of the week. Every one of us is tempted to do that. That would be hypocrisy to walk in on a Sunday morning and put on a public display, but privately in our inside self, not be affected or changed by the gospel. We have so little patience for hypocrisy of others, often because we see it all too clearly, at least the propensity for it in our own hearts. Like I said last week, there was serious opposition from outside the church but we also see a tremendous obstacle to gospel progress just when we look in our own hearts. So finally, what do we do about that? This is one of, as I said before, one of the more disturbing texts in all of the New Testament. We see how critical unity and holiness are for God's people, but we also see so clearly how serious God takes sin. How he judges deceit and hypocrisy that opposes the unity that he gave his son to, his son's life to establish. What do we do about it? Well, I think for me when I was looking at this, certainly, you know, the way the text ends, repeated twice in chapter, in verse six and again in uh, verse 11 of chapter five, it says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's repeated twice. Certainly, this text should generate within each one of us a healthy fear of God. It should. And so I don't wanna soften that just to make us feel more comfortable. But at the same time, we read this text as a people who, look at verse 33. And with great power, how were they able to live this beautiful community? And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. This was a community of people who were bought by the very blood of Jesus. Their entrance into the community was that of grace. And the way that they're able to live unified, generous, giving witness, the way that they're able to go on, it's not a different path. It's through the same door. As Charles Spurgeon says, all of our life is all of grace. What's the solution? The first thing is receive the power and the grace that is only available through the name of Jesus. This text shows us so clearly that there are consequences for sin, and those consequences are death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 
the price Ananias and Sapphira paid for their hypocritical hearts was their life. God doesn't just look away. He doesn't look the other way when we sin. Blood must be spilled. See that so clearly here. The grace, the good news of the gospel, the free gift of God, we know, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where our sin is great, is stinky, and ugly, God's love is greater, sweeter. He sees us in our sin. He knows the ugliness of our heart, of my heart, of your heart. He looks right into it. He knows every inconsistency in your life. And yet the Bible tells us he does not spare even his own son. Jesus, the man who lived the life that none of us can live, totally consistent, a man who is mighty in word and deed, a man who is full of grace and truth. What does that man do? Goes to the cross. While he lived the life that we can't, he freely lays down the life, pays the penalty for our sins, and then offers us, you and me, newness of life folds us into a community that is now governed by the very same grace, orchestrated by the exact same power, calls us new. Receive it. Second thing we're supposed to do is walk in that power and that grace. Jesus isn't just the means of entry into the community. He also is for us a living example, a model of what the consistent life looks like. And you know what Jesus says to us this morning through this word? He says, don't follow Ananias and Sapphira. Don't give in to hypocrisy and inconsistency. Don't turn your life over to love for money. Follow me. He says, follow me. Live consistently. Let your life match your message Follow his spirit and desire for unity. Follow his sacrifice and generosity. Follow his example of proclamation and boldly declaring the gospel message. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. What's, a, what's remarkable as we look at their community, do you know what it simply looks like? It looks like Jesus. And you know what our prayer should be for our church? Is that Jesus' spirit, he's alive, that his presence would dwell among us and that it would generate within us fear and affection, that we would long to be his presence here in this world. You know, this, just in closing, one, you know, I think God calls us to, in this text to be generous. I think one of the things for me, it's also just a reminder Two things. One, church ain't a play thing. <laughs> it's not. Like, we, we come and we have fun and we enjoy one another, absolutely. But there's something deeper that's happening here, more reverent. And the, the second thing I'll just point out is, in those three summaries, this is the only summary that doesn't really provide an example of or a description of location. It doesn't really refer much to what happens on Sunday morning. This is a picture of what the community looks like beyond Sunday morning. And so maybe one last application is if you call this church your home, but Sunday morning is your only level of engagement, 
as you see this picture of what gospel community looks like, my hope is that you would feel like maybe you're missing out. And there's cards, I think, in the seat backs. There's a table back there. We would love nothing more than to enfold you into this local body of believers. So what I'm gonna do is I just wanna give us one minute of silence. I wanna provide you the opportunity. Search your heart. Where are you consistent? Where do you smell hypocrisy? Just lay that before the Lord and um, think to yourself, do I need to receive his grace? Do I need to just be reminded of it so I can continue to walk in it? What's my action step? So let's take a minute, collectively do that, and then I'll transition us to a time of communion. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, just the opportunity to consider how our life matches up with your word. And um, as we consider the severity of, of sin, Lord, we also um, are so appreciative, so thankful, Lord, and give you so much praise that you don't deal with us as you should, as we deserve. Lord, but that you offer us grace, that you've shown us your love in your son, Jesus. Help us to be a people who are receive that gift and are also able to reflect it in the way that we live, in the way that we love, the way that we talk, the way that we give. And we thank you for your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen.